0: volatility isn't stability. A lot of people think if something's more volatile and it's going all over the place like this, that automatically means it's risky. But of course, that's not not necessarily the case at all because many currencies have completely collapsed when governments have had like a peg where it's fixed for like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years.
1: Adam Fyde is the director of International AMG, a global asset management entity with clients in more than 100 countries. He began his financial journey after traveling around the world and realizing the magic of compound interest. In this episode, we cover Adam's investing philosophy and that has served him and his clients well over the years, why investing in stagnant markets is a major advantage and why you should not worry about investing bubbles, diversifying your portfolio effectively to catch global trends, how essential is portfolio rebalancing, controlling emotions to achieve success in the financial markets. I highly recommend reading his blog and Cora answers to learn from his years of experience in helping others achieve their financial goals. If you have any questions or queries, contact him as he's always happy to help out. Hi Adam, welcome to Pay Now Bi Thank you so much for coming into the show.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me. No, it's a pleasure.
1: Awesome. So it's a, I've I first found you on Cora. You answer pretty consistent. What made you write on Cora?
0: Well, actually, it was not really a plan. So basically, like most people, I signed up, as you often do, just from, like, I think it might have even been a Facebook profile or whatever. I can't even remember uh, signing up, but you know how they often send you emails, these kind of social media platforms. They make it very easy for you to sign up if you're on Facebook or another social media channel. So I think I signed up years ago, and I did become familiar with it, because obviously, when you Google things, Quora is, like, you know, close to the top sometimes. So... I started as a reader, but not an avid reader, but then for some reason I got into it. Um, but then I also started to answer some questions on, on on living overseas. I think my first answers weren't about investing. Uh, there were things that kind of popped up. And then one thing led to another. I started answering more and more questions. Uh, so it came organically, really. Then I realized there were people who, uh, you know, wanted to become my clients from Quora. Um, so um, it wasn't ever a plan uh things happened organically um and really um you know i'm completely transparent about what i want to do here in that when i'm um a consumer when i'm looking for a product from somebody else i really appreciate it if they tell me all the information i need to know uh but they also leave their contact details just in case if i want to get in contact with them uh you know that's how I can do it. So let's say if I'm looking for legal service and I read an answer on, on Quora and it gives a fantastic answer and at the bottom it just says how you can contact them. That's far better than somebody who's just given a one-liner one trying to sell their products or services or by the opposite extreme, being too passive and yeah. they give a great answer. And you think, wow, I would really want to talk to this person, but how do I actually contact them? Um, so I give all the information that people want. They don't need to contact me, but if they want to, if they feel like I can help in the implementation phase, uh, then I'm here. So a great example is when it comes to investing, anyone who feels they can DIY invest, they can get all the answers for free from my uh, core answers and beyond. I don't say, oh, if you want to find out the last piece of the jigsaw, you have to uh, I don't know subscribe yeah. to my uh, paid uh, course. But yeah. by the same token, those people uh, who feel like they need help in that implementation phase They know how to contact me. Um, So I want to help people and also I want to help people who um, can't afford the services right now. So I get so many answers, sorry, so many um, uh, responses from people, uh, including on my WhatsApp, which is connected to my website now saying, well, look at them. I'm just starting out. I live in, I don't know, Ghana or Croatia or wherever. I can't afford your services right now, but I really want to thank you for helping me. So Of course, it wouldn't really work out if everyone was like that, but it is part of my plan as well, just to help people as well, uh, including those people who maybe can't afford advice, because people forget that in some parts of the world, Australia is a good example where you are now, and where I am in the UK, advice has become more elitist in recent times. In terms of most advisors, you need maybe 100,000, 200,000 to become a client. So many people are reliant on free uh, guidance uh, let's say so um, it's great if you can help those people as well just point them in the right direction um, and it also feels uh, you know good to help people solve their problems really
1: as well yeah that's amazing um, so how did you get started with your investing and financial journey like at which aid did you start and what got you here what was the process like
0: Well, I've always wanted to be independent as much as possible, right? So um, I don't know if we can all remember back to our times when we were a teenager or whatever. Uh, At that time, unfortunately, we don't always appreciate our parents or people in our family as much as we should. And we think, great, wouldn't it be fantastic if I didn't have to rely on anyone, whatever. But that's a natural feeling. And it isn't actually a bad feeling, right? Because obviously relying on yourself as much as is humanly possible, whilst also at the same time having those strong relationships with friends and family of course it is a good thing so i always wanted to kind of save money but i didn't really know how to invest when i was young now when i was 18 and i was uh, enrolling in business school i did the classic mistake of you know uh putting money into like individual stocks speculating all the things i say now you shouldn't do (laughs) but at least i was get (laughs) yeah but at least i got into the habit of i never got into the habit of debt or or or, uh, you know credit card debt whatever i was always Putting money in, even if I couldn't afford much, I was I was just adding whilst I could part-time job, add a bit more, and that was a good thing. But obviously, I made mistakes, um, and what I did then is I did more more reading, more learning, even before I came into the investment industry, and I I knew my mistakes. Fortunately, early to not do things like speculate with money and so on. And then once I uh, obviously came into the investment management industry, uh, when I was say a trainee did a lot more reading and one thing led to another. Uh, However, in the early years of uh, being in the industry, I was doing a much more typical thing. If I lived in country X, I would have clients in country X, or maybe at most, I would trip into a nearby country, occasionally get a client in a nearby country. It was only two or three years ago that I started doing things remotely and globally, because I realized even before coronavirus, we're going towards a completely different world in terms of the internet's been around now for what 25 30 years but even 15 years ago many people in many countries still had those awful dial-up connections which took so long to actually (laughs) you know get things done it almost feels like uh, when you talk to uh, people who are 18 20 now they almost look at people uh who talk about that like they're dinosaurs but it really is the case where you have to wait you could almost have a free course meal come back and the internet still wasn't perfect so (laughs) yeah um but what really happened from say 2010 until 2020 even before corona is more people started to do everything online so it started out just amazon ebay in like 2005 2006 then people started to go up the ladder of trust a little bit to maybe Buying insurance online, and then one thing kept leading to another. So I noticed a big difference between, say, 2012, 2013, until about 2018. In 2012, 2013, a lot of people still wanted that face-to-face advice, but maybe for something like insurance, they preferred to do it online. But then gradually, as the uh, the decade went on, the 2010s, people suddenly wanted to do everything online, whether that's hiring people online, sometimes Freelancer.com, or work.com whatever doing their finances online, doing their legal work online, uh, because people are more reassured by the general community's reviews of people yeah. um, as opposed to just meeting somebody uh, for a coffee and thinking, I like this person. So I'm not saying uh, face-to-face you know, never has its place, but I think even before corona, we were going into that direction where people wanted legal services. They would just Google for legal services um, and look at the general community's reviews of them as opposed to just relying on their network, and yeah, some people would put a post on Facebook saying, "Oh, do you know a lawyer, or do you know a dentist in the area?" but uh, we're completely going into a, a you know a different era, and I think coronavirus though has only accelerated that, of course uh, the fast forward button has very much been placed on a lot, I think now because in many ways people haven't been allowed to do things in the the old fashioned way right all around the world pretty much
1: yeah. Pretty much makes sense. And uh, with the question I on Cora, i's, I've seen a lot of people have asked, Oh, why is the uh, stocks going up and the economy is down and you said it again and again, and people still keep asking you. <laughs> so it's you pretty much get the answer to that as well on how things have changed and economy is not the stock market. So, yeah. And um, could you please um, describe your investing philosophy briefly?
0: Uh, If I was to talk about it briefly, I would say getting the basics right are very important. So things like being as long-term as possible. Um, you know, the longer term you are, the less risks you're taking. Uh, so a great example is the S&P 500. This is just one index of many, but the S&P 500, uh, on a daily basis, I think it has been down on 46% or so of days. That's almost half. That's a lot, right? Uh, but over a five-year period, it's been up something like 86% of times. Over 10 years, about 90% is being up, 10% you'll be down. Over 20 years, it's never been down, at least adjusted for inflation. Uh, So you can see the longer term you are, the less risk you're going to take. By the same token, though, especially as you get older, having some government bonds in your portfolio makes sense. But I don't think over-diversification works in the world we live in today. So yes, you do want to have more money in government bonds as you age, but volatility isn't stability. A lot of people think if something's more volatile and it's going all over the place like this, that automatically means it's risky. But of course, that's not, not necessarily the case at all because many currencies have completely collapsed when governments have had like a peg where it's fixed for like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, no volatility because mm-hmm. government hasn't allowed it. By the same token, I mean, just look at the markets last 30 years, the NASDAQ, has been the best performing index, but it's been even more volatile than the Dow Jones and S&P. That doesn't mean you should just put all your assets in the NASDAQ. It's not as diversified as the S&P, but it does show a point that stability, uh, you know, being safe and volatility aren't always the same thing. But yes, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. Also, as best as you can, I do think it makes sense to um, you know, uh, go into indices as much as possible. Uh, yes, people always have their, you know, their speculation uh, bone in their body. Let's say so. If somebody wants to do, you know, 10% in individual stocks that they really like, and 90% index. It's not really going to make a huge. It's not. It's not a huge deal. Let's say cause Even even the worst of the worst happens, and one of those stocks goes down, and you have 30 stocks in that 10%. It's not the, the end of the world. But I think um, a good investor actually controlling your emotions is much more key than actually just knowledge. So a lot of people when they buy even individual stocks or try to time the market, there's a lot of research which shows that they're more emotional. So a great example is if you live closer to an Amazon warehouse, you're more like Amazon stocks. Likewise, people are more likely to buy stocks for the company they work in, even though rationally speaking, you shouldn't kind of double your risk, right? Because if you lose your job and your shares, then you're screwed pretty much. <laughs> so yeah. um, trying to control emotions I think is key absolutely key and it's easier said than done because people forget this it sounds like you're insulting someone if you say you're irrational but human nature is more emotional than rational me too right Uh, you have to put checks and balances on that um so uh but we all have the same basic human nature and we're all more likely to be emotional than rational so even like world-class phd uh, VCs, uh, students, and even people who have won Nobel prizes, uh, for portfolio theory have sometimes admitted that they didn't follow their own advice because they just couldn't deal with the volatility. For example, they know it's irrational, but they just couldn't help themselves. So I think, uh, controlling emotions is very much part of my investment philosophy. There are ways you can do that, but I think that's often forgotten that behavioral finance. There's been a lot of books that have been read about it. One is uh, called The Behaviour Gap, why people, I think the subtitle is why people do dumb things with their money or something. And it looks at basically why even emotional people, uh, sorry, unemotional people in normal life do bad things with their money. But it's a bit like asking why they're fat doctors, for example, right? Just following your own advice is always gonna be easier said than done. So controlling emotion and any kind of uh, strategies for controlling emotion. I think is, is exceptionally important and it gets overlooked as well.
1: Yeah. With, uh, while we're on emotions with regards to investing, so emotions are usually subjective and it differ it's different from each person. So is, do you employ, like do you use any method to keep it as objective as possible when investing in the stock market or do you still, do you go by with your experience and just the sentiment and the current sentiment?
0: Mm. It's a good question. I think the huge emotions, though, uh, are more likely to be the same all around the world and across generations. So very severe panic or fear uh, and also extreme greed. I think that's much easier to kind of see. Right. So if a client in, say, for example, March is sending me a blind panic WhatsApp or email, then that's much easier to see that it's clear that it's, it's emotional. Right. Um, So I think first of all we have to make a distinction between the smaller emotions subtle things and the very obvious things So some emotions are very clearly uh, obviously either fear or greed Uh, But for some of the more subtle uh, Emotions, I think familiarity is a big one. So we're all more reassured by what's familiar um, What's normal, uh, but that causes a lot of problems Um, So when it comes to each individual, of course, it's impossible to read everyone right because i'm not a i'm not a psychologist but um i think the more things are either fear or greed or things like being reassured by what's familiar so if everybody else is doing something like buying a certain stock we're more likely to buy it ourselves or if our parents are british we're more likely to buy property if our parents are india we might be more likely to buy gold and so on and so forth right so being reassured by what's normal or what's familiar People do it subconsciously. It's not like people always consciously think, oh, well, I'm buying property because everyone else in my country does the same thing. Well, I'm buying gold because I'm Indian. People don't always think, you know, deeply about it. So often it's subconscious. But once you've been doing what I've been doing for a long time, you can kind of notice some commonalities um, and you can kind of just keep people calm as well. I I think the real destructive uh, emotions though, I think um, fear and greed are the two most, destructive emotions uh because they're the most likely to cause you to do stupid things with your money right because if you sell at the very worst time for example like in 2008 2009 that could cost you what that, well it, it could mean you can't retire in some cases it means you might have to work yeah. until you're dead right in some it's very severe and i think those very severe emotions are the issue. But I think the key thing also is if somebody acts on them or not, we all have emotions, but the the bottom line is if you don't act on that, if you feel fearful, but you decide not to sell, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's if you act on those emotions, right? So recognizing that an emotion is actually what it is, just an emotional reaction, I think is also quite important to stop you doing those negative things with your money.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And um, yeah. you said you help out a lot of uh, new investors as well. So, With regards to new investors, what would be their top financial priorities in a post-COVID world? And if they're just starting out now, what what would be their top financial priorities?
0: Uh, It depends on where people are in their time of life, right? There are some people who are looking for, for example, an income from an investment pot. But realistically, there's a lot of misleading information online. You can't realistically earn money, enough money to live often a thousand dollar investment uh, or even a $30,000 investment. So some people, they think they want income to actually live off, but you can't realistically do that off an investment part, which is, it's small. You have to build it up first. So a lot of people are looking for economic security, but a lot of people also, it's more for the long uh, you know, just building up every month until they have that kind of pot of money. Uh, when they retire and so on. So, I think building up a second income stream is also always going to be a kind of a, a big priority for people. Because, of course, eventually, whether it's in retirement or it's, it's sooner, people do tend to need an income unless they're lucky enough to find a the job they love and they can do it for the rest of their life and they never get seriously ill. Um, in terms of in the post COVID environment as well, um, I think a lot of people are also more uh, acutely aware of uh, the fact that the past can't always be an indication of the future so a lot of people have reached out to me who wouldn't normally reach out like previously successful business people who had very successful businesses but they were essentially in some cases wiped out by covid or they're struggling uh, because of of the nature of their business if their business focuses on the face-to-face environment like bars nightclubs Uh, some kinds of cafes, theatres or whatever. And for those people, their priorities are more changed because regardless of what happens in the future, they're starting to think, well, hold on, historically, I could have got 20, 30% just reinvesting back into my business. But this has really shown me that you never know what will happen around, you know, just around the corner. So I need to diversify a little bit. So I think for uh, wealthier people, uh, they are more likely to have realize they can't just rely on their business alone even those people who have seen their businesses expand in this period and finally i think for some people who are like young and just getting started they've read things online and very sensibly they know about compounding interest and whatever and for a lot of them i think they just want to get started um and that's that's actually quite wise because um i think there's a quote i can't remember who said it but he said like eighty percent of. Of success in life is just showing up or something like that, and it sounds obvious, but just taking that yeah. first step and saying, right, I'm going to automate my savings or investments. Every month, a tiny bit, going to go for my salary. Just get the process started after graduation. Uh, I think that's also becoming a, a you know a um, priority for people because we are looking at a more economic uncertain future. Even if I think long-term global GDP will always rise over any kind of long period of time. But nevertheless, we're going into a world which is much more uncertain, but also much more exciting when it comes to some of the technologies, which are just around the corner. But I don't think people are thinking like they did before, oh, I work for IBM, I work for GE, so I can just stay here until retirement, I'll I'll be great. I think less people in those traditional jobs uh, are kind of feeling secure. So I think that's changing the world a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, with, with the current stock market, um, the tech stocks, as you know, the FANG stocks and all the speculative hypergrowth stocks have been making all time highs and they're growing at an almost unsustainable rate and uh, on the back of new investors and stimulus. So with the next decade, so at the end of 2020, so 2020 to 2030, do you reckon there'll be subpar returns because they've gone up too high or should people just keep investing in growth and the Nasdaq? Uh,
0: Well, first of all, I mean, the first obvious thing to say is, I I don't know for sure, right? And nobody does know, right? No one has a crystal ball. What I would say though is, if you look at the markets around the world, they are fairly priced, I would say right now, in terms of, if you look at all the markets, apart from the Nasdaq, they are still all below their all time lows. for example, even the Dow Jones and the S&P 500, even at the up for the year, they're still a bit lower than they were in, in, in February uh, time. Um, so for example, uh, the Dow Jones uh, it hit over 29,000. Now it's at uh, about 27,000. So it's still... About 8% or so lower than it was, 7%, 8%. And many markets are well below their lows. Look at the UK market, right? It was a 7,700. The FTSE, it's now at about 6,000. It has a great dividend yield, right? It's 4.3%. So if you look globally, there's plenty of undervalued opportunities uh, out there. Now, when it comes to tech, I think we have to make a distinction between individual stocks and the whole market. So you're right that the whole market, on the surface, it, it does look more of a value compared to the Dow uh or the smp however investors are probably factoring in that we are moving to a fundamentally different world uh you know maybe a fourth industrial revolution evolving tech so i would make a distinction between the, the general market and um you know individual players so when it comes to individual players you're saying speculative bets i would keep away from them i was reading um there's been one or two stocks that have been up about a thousand percent some people haven't even heard of them, just they've gotten, um, they're not making money in some cases, right? They, they just, they've just gotten <laughs> financings. I was reading yeah. about one which got financing from a Singaporean company. But at the end of the day, uh, and by the way, that company's done better than any company, even Tesla. I, I can't remember its name now, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's up about 900%. And yeah, prob- yeah probably the reason I can't. I don't it's name is, I'm not not interested obviously in the stock, (laughs) but the point is it might go up another 1,000%, right? Or it might go down, but at the end of the day, if there's no cash flow, it's a speculation, right? If a company's not making money, it might become the next Amazon, which didn't make money for years, but it might not. So I'd make a distinction. I would say having 10% in the NASDAQ as an index is absolutely fine. But if you start to go for individual picks, I, I would be a bit worried. I mean, even FANG in Venice, FANG is a very different thing to investing in these individual kind of uh, stocks, um, which aren't making any money. I don't think it's likely that all stock markets in the world will have a weak 10 years because there's been so much stimulus. There's 0% interest rates, uh, a lot of QE. So where else is money going to go to? uh people are not going to want to keep their money in the bank so i think markets will probably do well especially globally even if individual markets might do badly so there's a chance i'm not going to guarantee this but markets that haven't done well for the last 10 years compared to the us like some emerging markets europe and whatever might do better than the american markets for example because there's often cyclical change but again we can't know that um so i i I wouldn't say you know you, you should be concerned about this and a final point i would make is if markets are stagnant for a whole 10 years if you're young enough you should actually be delighted about that because you know at the end of the day if you are accumulating units you should see yourself like a painter right a, co- a collector of units so always remember when the markets are going up you're collecting less units because the price is becoming more expensive so let's say markets are stagnant for the next 10 years that's a great yeah. opportunity for someone who's young uh, or, or young enough. I mean, a great example I would make is this. If you look at somebody, let's take two people, person one and person two, they both invest the same amount. It could be a thousand, two thousand, whatever amount, identical money. Person A gets, uh, let's say 15% for the first uh, 10, uh, let's say 15 years, and then from year 16 to 30 gets uh, 2%. Then you've got person B who gets 0% uh, for 15 years, but then gets 13% for the, for the second half. Uh, from year 16 to 30 actually person two would end up with more money because person a is getting the high returns during the early years Uh, of the account when the account's worth less person b is almost like he or she's loading their gun with loads of units so when it's ready to be fired there's a lot right Uh, mm. uh, so the way i would explain it is imagine if markets had stayed as cheap as they were in march or april or for that matter in 2008 and 2009 imagine they would stay that cheap for years that would actually be an opportunity for anybody apart from those people who were retired or close to retired so um, i wouldn't worry at all about this notion of markets being stagnant for 10 years because even if they are it's a good opportunity for anyone who's young uh, but someone who's old they should be in in bonds anyway Uh, they should have uh, at least some bonds anyway so uh but my money would say that Globally, at least, I don't think markets will be stagnant for ten years, but but nobody knows really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, today I was just playing around with charts and came across a (laughs) pretty like a observation. So Nasdaq from the Feb highs, and now it's just fifteen percent away, like fifty percent over. So my question was, are we using tech fifteen percent more? And obviously the answer is yes so that's how i i built my bullish case as well yeah i mean that's the thing right i mean in the long term
0: i don't think in 30 years time right we're obviously not going to be using less tech than now surely no one can see the future but you would think that unless there's something incredible that happens because we've been moving in this direction for years i think where people are more likely to get their fingers burnt is in individual stocks or they panic if there's a huge market fall so, it wouldn't surprise me, for example, if the NASDAQ was to fall 30, 40, 50% this year, next year, or any year in the next 10 years, it really wouldn't surprise me if there's a fall. But again, for our long term investor, that doesn't matter because if you look at the NASDAQ last 30 years, it actually took about 16 years for the NASDAQ to hit its uh, 2000 high. I think it wasn't until about 2015 or 2016 that it recovered it's highs from from 2000s but now it's much higher so again that shows you they shouldn't worry about a period of, yeah. of stagnation but what many people do is they panic right like they got onto the, they got into the nasdaq in the 90s they sold when it was unfashionable they kind of got back in maybe a few years ago so as long as somebody's willing to kind of play the long game frankly it doesn't really matter if the nasdaq falls by 50 percent or is stagnant for five or ten years um, so a, a portion of the nasdaq is fine i wouldn't say people should have the whole lot of their portfolio of course in the nasdaq even though it isn't completely technology focused that's a bit of a misconception it isn't quite as diversified of course as something like the s&p 500 MSCI world and so on so it's fine to have the nasdaq as one component but i do suspect that some people are really going to get their fingers burned for some of the individual picks um which they're making
1: yeah 100 so and as a specialist in expat investing as well and you've travel quite a lot. What, what, uh, what emerging markets do you see as potentially undervalued and could have more opportunity for investors going forward?
0: Um, well, it's interesting because you know what you're saying earlier about the stock market and the economy not always being linked. One of the key mistakes people have made in the past is assuming that investing in China or Southeast Asia uh would be profitable because the economy is going up uh that hasn't been the case of the shanghai composite uh was a six thousand in 2006 and it went down to like under 2000 now it's a three thousand three hundred three thousand four hundred um so that's a great example that you should rely on economic growth to produce figures about the stock market um, i would say that emerging markets in general have had a weak 10-year period so they might well be undervalued now Um, So this year, many people forget that, for example, the Chinese stock market has actually had a good year after many years of performing very badly, uh, as an example. So I would say China actually still looks relatively cheap, but there's a lot of risks associated with the Chinese market because in China, uh, most of the players, uh, not so much in Hong Kong, but the, the Shanghai Composite, are individual investors. And those individual investors are very prone to very, what we talked about before, more emotional Emotional. picks. So if you look at the Shanghai stock market over any period of time, it's much more uh, volatile. And there's nothing wrong with volatility when it comes to US stock markets. But what tends to happen in China is when sentiment goes against the market or for the market, it becomes quite extreme. So in 2015, the Shanghai stock market went from about 3,000 or less than 3,000 to well over 5,000, almost doubled in a period of like, six to nine months uh, because there was like a mania that was going on uh, and then one thing led to another. there was a big crash and then of course you got the whole thing with china and the us and whatever so china looks a bit undervalued on a p to e ratio uh but it's got a lot more risks the uk obviously not on the emerging market uh, but uk uh, looks undervalued as well the footsie but again uh, there are risks there because the vanguard founder Uh, Jack Bogle, he made a very good point and he said markets aren't always rational but they're also not stupid. So if a market looks very undervalued uh, then there's a reason for that and if it was so easy to say beat the S&P 500, people could essentially just uh, market hop and always go to China this year because the PTE uh, price to earnings ratios are are lower, they look undervalued, then go to Colombia then go to UK, then back to US. It isn't always that easy but I would say that Emerging markets, if you buy it as a basket, like MSCI uh, Emerging Markets, it has been trailing now for about 10 years. So probably the simplest and easiest way of getting uh, access to undervalued opportunities would be to buy an index like that, because pretty much all of those stock markets have uh, trailed the U.S. uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, um, There are a few others as well, uh, which look a bit undervalued, um but again there's always issues there right uh there's always a reason they're undervalued at least you know in the short term so latin america would be in our example it's performed very poorly recently or at least relatively to the us uh but there's always reasons for that so i would say j- just holding a, a broad uh msci emerging markets is fine and If you have access to MSCI World, you will get access to those emerging market opportunities. MSCI World has done much worse than, than, say, the U.S. market in the last five years as well. So you could become even more diversified. Uh, So it really depends how much risk you want to take. I personally think that on a risk-to-return ratio, the U.K. stock market, not the FTSE 250, the 250 biggest companies, which has done quite well, over the last 15 years but the FTSE 100 uh, the main index just the 100 biggest uk firms i think on a risk return ratio is probably the cheapest uh in the world now uh because obviously the uk stock market just like australia uh, us and a few others, has had a long-term uh record of, of going up over say a 30 40 50 year period for a long time now i mean the UK's had markets for a couple of hundred years it's got a really good dividend yield uh, 4.3%. So that means that even if the market is stagnant for 10 years in a worst case scenario, you're getting 4.3% per year. Um, and it's, it's quite undervalued. And it's also quite international because UK firms just like US firms are internationally diversified. So actually if you wanted to punt with 10% of your portfolio on the most undervalued index, at least related to risk, I actually think the UK is probably the most undervalued right now uh, obviously there's reasons for that, right? Uh, markets aren't stupid. There's a lot of things going on, Brexit and God knows what else, but UK looks quite undervalued at the moment.
1: Right. And, um, you talked mentioned about, uh, portfolio rebalancing before, uh, just wanted to ask for the average investor who's just starting off or who has been investing for say three to five years, is it still important or is rebalancing important only when you have a high portfolio?
0: It's an interesting question I would actually say if you're a long way away from retirement it doesn't matter anywhere near as much because uh, Vanguard have done various studies and what they've found is if you're in a hundred percent stock market portfolio over the long term you are going to beat an 80 20 portfolio um, and that was eighty percent mm. in stocks 20 percent in bonds and an 80 20 portfolio is going to beat a 60 40 percent portfolio and uh, 50-50 portfolio is going to do even worse nice. however because bonds perform well during periods like 2008 and 9 and in March it evens out the volatility and also um, if a very extreme period happens like the Great Depression of course it reduces risk in retirement so I would say a new investor if they've got the stomach for volatility actually they should just be a hundred percent in stocks uh in stock markets and then move it gradually maybe 90 10 when they're maybe in their 30s then maybe go to 80 20 so they don't really need to focus that much on rebalancing when they're just starting out and besides there's no way you can rebalance when you're just starting out you could just add money to that component of your portfolio yeah. but if you start out as a young investor you've got three indexes for example one's doing incredibly let's say the nasdaq now one's doing poorly like the uk with the next top up you could just put it into the uk and you know, even out anyway. But the good thing about rebalancing is it does force you to remember that if one aspect of your portfolio is doing well, that's not always a good thing, right? And it does also stop you getting into like speculative bubbles. So let's say you're worried that I don't know that the Nasdaq has become a bubble relative to the UK market. If you rebalance, then in a way you're taking some risk off the table. So it is a good tool. But as you're saying though, if you're young and you're just starting out got decades to retirement it doesn't actually make a huge difference uh and i don't think it's something that people necessarily need to do but only if they can prepare themselves for the kind of volatility that's going to come in the markets if somebody isn't willing to take volatility because they're scared about it and and they know that they can't deal with it um then in which case rebalancing can work so online there's been a lot of um In the Ray Dalio's, you know, all were a portfolio, even though it's done relatively poorly compared to, say, the S&P 500 or even, uh, you know, 10% in bonds, 90% in the S&P 500. But I think the reason for that is people have seen the headlines that it's only been down three or four times in the last 40 years. So for people who don't like the idea of huge volatile swings, they could start out with a... um, diversify portfolio and rebalance yeah. but just looking at this rationally it's better to have two stages to the process stage one is accumulation you don't give a damn about the volatility you just invest in and investment and invest. stage two you focus as you get into middle age or whatever on, on rebalancing uh, that's what i would say
1: yeah awesome and in your opinion what are some what are a few very underrated investment strategies that people can potentially use
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one I think is um, being 100% in stocks when you're young a lot of people that they, they, they believe in this kind of diversification thing. and yes above a certain age it makes sense but I think uh, of course it doesn't make sense to have 100% of your portfolio in Amazon stocks but if you're in an index Let's say for example you're in your 20s and you want to put 100% in the S&P 500 a diversified global index it's not an American index really it's America plus the world look at Apple Amazon's revenue whatever there's nothing wrong with that As long as when you get older you you know you, you then diversify more so most people think that you should put at least 10% in bonds i know Warren Buffett recommends 90% in stocks 10% in bonds even when you're a bit older but i think going completely 100% in stock indexes when you're younger at least is a great strategy as long as you realize you're investing for the long term and you're going to change that over time. Um, That's one thing I think is is very uh, underrated. Um, Few people suggest that, although I know Vanguard's done some research which has suggested that's a good thing to do. Um, Apart from that, I would say uh, real estate investment trusts, REITs, can be a good tool as well. So there was a study down which showed that if you put 10% in REITs, like a global diversified REITs and you read it would slightly beat um, a portfolio which was just bonds and stocks only very slightly but like 0.1 0.2 percent per year but that adds up over 40 years yeah that's yeah Um, and it would lower the volatility so the funny thing is yeah i mean the so the funny thing is REITs because they tend to perform during periods where stocks don't perform and, and vice versa they can lower the volatility of a portfolio while slightly increasing the returns uh, which is which is great i think as well um so those are two things i think are are underrated for sure
1: right and i think currently now REITs are very undervalued when compared to stocks and now is probably a great time to get into REITs because as far as i can remember they've they're still like 20 30 down from their highs in feb so mm. yeah that's a really good point. yes yeah and they
0: they are because real estate has taken a hit
1: right with regards to your investing and your entrepreneurship your businesses what what has like what parts of your mindset has led to your success
0: um i think um not blindly following what's normal uh is a key thing so um it's human nature and, and including my nature i'm sure at least one part of my nature—it's uh, it, something which is very human. You, you kind of follow what other people do, right? So, you know, five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, almost everyone's values might seem kind of barbaric in the yeah. year twenty twenty, as an example, like social values, whatever. I'm sure the way our ancestors were living a thousand years ago would have seemed barbaric. It doesn't mean they were bad people, right? They were just following what was normal at the time. And obviously, that's an extreme example. But even when it comes to investing, business, whatever, people are very you know, attracted to what's normal, but the problem is, if you just focus on what's normal, you're not going to overachieve unless it's in very limited circumstances. What I mean by that is, obviously, if there's a huge boom, if you were living in China when it was growing by 15%, you could have made money even just following a normal strategy, right? If a market or a country or a region is growing like crazy, then yes, you can make money just following what everybody else is doing. If 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 the tides, the boats, you know. R- r- you know, raising all the tides, Uh, but in general, uh, normal actions and behavior lead to normal results. They don't lead to extraordinary results. And if you want extraordinary results, you have to break a few norms. That doesn't mean you blindly say, okay, this is normal. So I'm going to do the opposite because if it was that easy, then everyone would do it. And there are certain things that are normal that make sense. For example, if you're, if you're in business, it's stupid not to ask for client referrals. It takes you two minutes. If you, especially if you're on WhatsApp or, or these apps now, it takes a few seconds to ask someone for a referral. So why not do it? It's normal, but it's rational. But there's a lot of other things which are completely abnormal, which work. I mean, a great example is you talked to me on this uh, video at the start about Quora and you were mentioning how, you know, I've been on Quora for a few years now and it was abnormal, uh, well, it still is, but I guess uh, a couple of years ago, it was, it was very abnormal for somebody, for example, uh, to get uh, clients from Quora. So it's, it's more successful by definition than if everyone's trying to do it. And the same thing uh, in general, if you look at something like LinkedIn, um, I know a guy who was absolutely killing it on LinkedIn 10 years ago. Now he says it's much more difficult, why? Mm-hmm. Because I think he's, um, uh, he's not a recruiter, he's uh, like a business, uh, he does like business incorporation. He, he starts um, companies for people. And he was saying 10 years ago when it was very socially unacceptable, LinkedIn was like a CV kind of portal. it wasn't real social media. Yeah. uh some people be really offended by uh, a, a a message on linkedin some people would say him, how dare you send me a message <laughs> this is not this is not appropriate this is a job portal you know it's blocking him and reporting him to linkedin or whatever it wasn't normal but by the same token even though some people hated him well quite a few people it seems uh, his success rate though was also relatively good he was saying he could get 20 or 30 percent of people would actually agree to a phone call meeting because they weren't getting pitched. Whereas now everyone's used to getting spammed on, on LinkedIn. So therefore hardly anyone gets annoyed with him because it's normal. Why would you get annoyed with him? He's, he's the 10th person, the 15th person, the 20th person, probably in the day who's, who's, who's approached some of these people. However, his success rate has gone down from 20 to 30% down to I think about 5% because, wow. or even less, because people are, are used to it now. It's a more cause it's normal. It's more crowded. It's more competitive. So in that more competitive environment, unless you're doing something very unique with your messaging or whatever, you're not going to do as well. So I think um, doing abnormal things, as long as there's a rationale behind it, obviously not doing it just for the sake of doing it, It there has to be a reason for it. I think that's one of the key ways you can can succeed. And also it's less competitive uh, because people are naturally focused on their comfort zone. It's also less competitive as well. Uh, Beyond that, I think, um, Playing the numbers game a bit right because um if you think about it if it was so easy to get traction after one or two attempts everyone would do it so i think also one of the key things is trying many many different techniques because uh no matter how much traction you get on one particular medium you're not always going to get it on on another medium so a good example is even with me right um you know as you said i, I have a lot of traction on, on quora i i have you know, half decent amount on, on uh, YouTube, Uh, my, my personal website gets 70,000 views. Uh, Yeah. My uh, Twitter has, I think about 120 followers or something, right. Even though it's on my website. So people think you can be successful in all, all domains, but in reality, you might have to try many, many different types of techniques um, to to get successful. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So playing the numbers game, um, breaking uh, norms as much as possible, doing abnormal things. Uh, strateg- strategically, uh, that can make sense. Um, I think there is a dis- difference between business and investing, though. In investing, if you do very normal uh, techniques, it can work for a simple reason. If I buy the S and P index, you buy the S and P index, and loads of other people buy it, we can all win. Yeah, it's not a zero sum yeah. game, right? Yeah, and it's it's not as we're not competing. Whereas if we're trading, that's different. If I if I sell you Amazon stock uh either you're right or i'm right amazon can't beat the stock market at the same time as the stock market beats amazon it's a zero-sum game but in business even though the pie gets bigger bigger at least over a long period of time by definition you're competing against other people right whereas in investing you don't need to always compete against other people so that that completely makes it a different uh ball game right
1: right yeah that puts a lot a lot into perspective actually when you think of it like that Yeah. Thanks for that. And yeah, two quick questions before we wrap up. So what is your, what is your biggest strength that has helped you get to where you are? What would you call your biggest strength?
0: That's a difficult question. And it's probably, it would have been better if there was somebody else here who's known me for a long time, who could answer that question. Um, But I would say on average, uh, um perseverance if you, persistence persevering and uh maybe one word i would say uh resilience resilience is quite key um because in in the early stages for anyone and even in in the the middle stages you are we are all living in a competitive world right and unless you uh you know, inherit loads of money, or you get very lucky, and luck is not a strategy, uh, people are not just going to come up to you and say, oh, here's, here's some business, oh, you know, here's some yeah. clients, I, I know you're young, you seem like a good guy, I'm going to give you my money, right? And of course the world doesn't, doesn't, li- doesn't work like that. So in the early stages, and in the middle stages, you've got to be very resilient. And even once you're established, of course, there's always going to be forks in the road you've got to be resilient, you've got to be tough. But I think the difference is once you're established, uh, if you have clients behind you, where it's clients behind you, credibility, where it's money, whatever, of course, that's a springboard to, to great things, right? Because if you use this strategically, you know, whether that's client reviews, whether that's, that's money in the co- that company account, whatever it is, you've got a base. Whereas when you're starting out, I think you've got to be very resilient. You've got to uh, be willing to put in uh, a lot of work. Hard work's always good, but especially when you're starting out, Uh, and take the big knock so resilience is key and kind of within resilience i'll say persevering uh, perseverance during the the worst times and persistence uh, is really really important Um, if you do all those things um, i think it's really key Uh, i think persistence is even more important than patience actually
1: right awesome and The last one. So what is your biggest mistake and what have you learned from it? So it could be a penny stock.
0: (laughs) Actually, I would say um, investing was never a biggest mistake from the point of view that even though I had that short period when I didn't know much when I was, say, 18 as a college student, I was young. It didn't really matter if if I made money or or, or lost money. So as it happens, I made... Actually, in the first three years of investing, I made 100%. I doubled my money. But I was young and I thought wow this is because of my great skill and i didn't realize then when things went down it was, it was probably just just luck so uh, that wasn't a, it would have been my biggest mistake if i was i don't know 65 and i did something like that but i was right. i was young right so you can kind of um always recover from that um i would say the biggest uh the biggest errors i made and it's kind of linked to uh, what we talked about before, but I'll kind of divert it to something slightly different. Is following industry norms, uh, not doing abnormal things for many years, and making the mistake of assuming that people who were older than me in the industry always knew better. Okay. Uh, when in reality, uh, what you find is now. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's always bad for people who are young, who have no experience, zero experience. To go into a company and be arrogant so the fact that i was open to other people's ideas who are much older than me of course that that's a good thing right if i hired someone now they're 21 just out of university i wouldn't expect them you know you'd expect them to, to at least listen to you uh, or, or know that you have uh, you know more experience than them but by the same token i think the mistake i made is even though at school and university i was always a bit of a contrarian and um, i always challenged things uh, uh teachers whatever um I had respect for their knowledge, but I didn't assume what they were saying was always right. And, you know, after being in business school, I went on a political direction, studied politics for a while and had some very fierce debates with the lecturers whatever. So I I had respect for them, but also I didn't assume they were always right. And I think um, in the early stages of my career, I made the mistake of listening too much uh, to people who were older and hadn't adapted. That's the key thing. There's always those people mm-hmm. and there's, there's 10 or 20% of them in, in my industry in our industries. They're older, but they, they always adapt. And those people are worth their weight in gold because they've got the experience, but they know what, what works now. Um, and one or two people who have taught me the most in this industry have been those people who have been older, but they've also adapted to the times and they realize what works now. But I found, I mean, looking back, a lot of the advice I got when I was relatively new in the industry was people who had failed to adapt themselves to the new times. So they're telling me things like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to meet clients face to face, you have to do business in this way, or you have to do business in that way. And a lot of their advice would have been absolutely fantastic advice in the 90s, or maybe even the early to mid 2000s. But it wasn't applicable for the world then, and especially not the world we we're going into. But yeah. because people like to be in their comfort zone, it's very difficult to change their perspective. Um, and COVID's been a big shock, so I think some people are now trying to change. Even those who previously were were, were skeptical about some of these things. But I think that was my key uh, one uh, biggest mistake. And um, just the final one. I know you said one, but I'll, I'll give it two yeah, if I can. Go for but, it. Uh, one final mistake is also um, being too, ever when I've ever been impressionable and cared what people think. That's always a mistake. What I mean by that is this: is that even when I was, um, you know, a student, whatever. In general, uh, I would always give my opinions. I, I didn't care too much uh, about everyone. You know, I, I was respectful to other people's opinions, but I wouldn't necessarily self-censor, or uh, I, I wouldn't care if if, if my opinions uh, were, were against somebody else's. It's always a mistake, I think, to try to be somebody who you're not, uh, or even try to censor what you're saying because you're worried about what somebody else might think. Um, so I think uh, that's a key uh, mistake. Um, you know. So whether that's on social media or beyond, I think being who you are, it's fine because the people who um, you know are in tune with you, you're gonna get those kind of, those followers or whatever, those people who don't like what you're saying, they won't be, but that's fine. If you're in the middle of the road, you get kind of trampled on. Whereas if you try to be all things to all people, you actually don't get as much traction in some ways. So, I would say never, uh, never care too much uh, about what other people uh, are thinking or uh, you know about you, because deep down, actually, no one really cares anyway. So, I think yeah. those things are, are certainly mistakes I've made in the past.
1: Awesome! That's amazing advice. That's that. There's a lot to learn from that. And um, before we close out, is there any final words you want to leave the audience with?
0: Uh, no, just uh, thanks for listening. And, um, uh, you know, if you want to follow my uh, my work, um, I think uh, you can find me on, on various channels. And I think uh, there'll be a link to this below the podcast. Also, I'm always very keen to be in tune with what people uh, want. In other words, uh, if people want me to answer a question, whether it's on YouTube, on Quora, or any other social media, I'm always keen to be in tune with what people are are, are wanting me uh, what p- questions or what, what problems I can answer for people and I think that's really key knowing your audience and uh, you know having some respect for them as well so if you have any questions for me more than happy to answer them uh, sometimes I've even done videos or, or questions after people have asked me a very complicated question on email I said well look I'll just uh, answer it online mm-hmm. um, so I'm more than happy to answer those kind of questions for people and you know people are confused about investing in, uh, and our things, so I'm more than happy to uh to help out.
1: Awesome. Um thank you so much for your time madam. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. No Hello. problem.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new from this episode. If you did, make sure you like, comment and subscribe. And if you know anyone who would benefit from the content we covered today, make sure you share it with them and add some value to their life. Have a blessed day and take care.